Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. And Karen Tkach-Tusman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, Congress takes a big step forward toward reauthorizing FDA user fees. We'll look at what's in, what's out, and what's next for reforming FDA. We'll also take a look at Howard University's equity focus and how that is helping the university advance translation. But first, it's last call for Bioequity Europe. The 22nd Bioequity Europe kicks off next week in Milan. Due to record demand, Bioequity is sold out. But good news, you can still register for a digital access pass, which allows you to schedule virtual one-on-one meetings with bioequity delegates and watch all session and presentation recordings for up to 30 days after the event. Digital attendees also receive BioCentury's second annual scene setter, McKinsey's bioequity conference report, and complimentary access to BioCentury's BCIQ database. Go to bioequityeurope.com to learn more. Later this week, we will have a special edition of our podcast to set the scene for you with some special guests who helped us put the conference together. Well-dressed Italian men. All right, Steve. This is always your time to shine. User fees. It only comes once every five years. Is that right? Why don't you break it down for those who might not understand how the process of user fee reauthorization works and why it's so important for FDA? We've only got 20 minutes, so I'm not going to get into all of that, even in brief. But in, in short, look. FDA can't function without user fees. It needs the money to review drugs and to do any number of other things. They negotiate terms of the, of the user fee reauthorization with industry groups. There's input from patient advocates and uh, consumer representatives. Then they send it to Congress, and everybody hopes that Congress is just going to uh, sign on the dotted line and everything's going to be fine. They never do. Congress always uses this as an opportunity to add features, you could call it, or bugs, depending on uh, which, side of the, uh, which side of the equation you're on, into FDA's mission and its responsibilities. This time's no exception. There are a number of things that Congress is thinking about doing. There are two separate processes underway. One is in the House of Representatives. One is in the Senate. The House is a little bit farther along. The Energy and Commerce Committee has jurisdiction over the FDA in the House, and Energy and Commerce last week released a set of bills that it wants to put together, or a set of provisions, I'm sorry, that it wants to put together into the FDA Reauthorization Act. That's kind of the, the, the platform or the springboard for what's going to come because there are no doubt will be more things added in the House as the process rolls forward. But what so about the, the Senate's role? Uh, so the Senate is on a separate track. It's going to also have a user fee reauthorization legislation. When it's finished with that, then the two bodies will get together and they will reconcile the two bills. Most likely what's going to happen is that anything that's 
in the Senate bill and not in the House bill and vice versa will end up in the final bill. If there's anything that conflicts between the two, then they're going to have to have a process for adjudicating that and figuring out how to come up with a common bill that comes out of it. So, Steve, are there areas that you think are going to get particularly pushed back by Congress because they're controversial? Everybody thinks one way and the politicians think another. I'm not sure about that, but there certainly are controversial issues. And there are also issues that may just be too difficult for them to resolve. So the, I think the most, one of the most controversial issues that they're dealing with is accelerated approval. There are a lot of contradictory ideas in Congress and in the medical community and in society about what FDA should do to change accelerated approval process. What the House Energy and Commerce Committee has come out with is, I think, non-controversial, and it's something that patient groups in industry and FDA can support. Some of the opponents of accelerated approval will not support it. Basically, they want to give FDA more authority to be able to require that confirmatory trials are underway at the time that accelerated approval is granted. They want to make it easier for FDA to impose specific requirements on what those trials should entail, including milestones and timelines. And they want to make it easier for FDA to withdraw drugs if the trials aren't conducted or if the results of the trials don't bear out the clinical benefit that had been hoped for at the time of approval. Now, Steve, I know there was some disappointment in the rare disease community last week that the bill, as it now stands at least, would not require FDA to create a center of excellence for rare diseases. Is there anything in the bill that the rare disease community liked? Oh, yeah. So basically, advocates for rare diseases want FDA to create uh, a center of excellence for rare diseases similar to the Oncology Center of Excellence. FDA leadership has opposed this, and um, so far the Congress seems like they're going to go with FDA on it. But the bill does include things that are intended to promote the development of drugs for rare diseases. It gives more resources to FDA. It requires that FDA hold meetings and issue guidance on topics like the use of real-world evidence to confirm clinical benefit of rare diseases, basically devotes more resources, time and resources at FDA to figuring out also how to create endpoints for studying rare diseases. And that is intended to make it possible to develop drugs for diseases that right now it's not clear what the path forward on them would be. One of the other things that, that I should mention, it seems a little bit obscure, but the bill also removes an ambiguity in the Orphan Drug Act, which if you may recall, there was a conflict between two companies, one called Catalyst Pharmaceuticals, the other one called Jacobus, over an orphan drug for a very rare condition. FDA approved Catalyst drug, and Catalyst charged a very high price for it. Previously, Jacobus had been making it available for free. Ordinarily, that would be the end of the story because they are the same, the same drug, and Jacobus didn't have the orphan exclusivity that Catalyst got. But FDA found a way around that by giving Jacobus orphan exclusivity for pediatric indication, even though there really are extraordinarily few children that get this condition, and Jacobus hadn't actually studied any children. The federal judge blew the whistle on that and said, no, the Orphan Drug Act doesn't give FDA the authority to carve up an indication, and if it gives exclusivity 
for any part of that indication, then it covers the whole indication. FDA and pediatric rare disease advocates were very upset by this. They think that it took away a tool that FDA has that can incentivize companies to study pediatric indications of rare diseases. Congress agrees, and both the draft that was released by the Energy and Commerce Committee and legislation that's in the works in the Senate that would be connected to user fee legislation will close that loophole, if you will, and give FDA the authority to carve up orphan indications. And that's going to be especially important for pediatric indications. Nicely done, Steve. I think you explained that well under the hour and a half <laughs> that I would think it would take. It's an incredibly uh, complicated issue, incredibly important, however. And, and Steve, you've been following this and have written extensively on it. So if you're interested in reading more, biocentury.com has several stories by Steve. I, I want to, I'm not going to take the hour and a half, but I do want to point out one other thing, <laughs> which, because I think that nobody else has really picked up on this one, which is that the draft that the House released also gives drug companies a safe harbor to discuss drugs with payers, including to discuss health economic information that they've generated about drugs, both approved drugs and unapproved drugs. They can discuss that with payers. That's an important thing because, because payers want to have these discussions with companies so that they're not surprised when a drug gets approved. Companies want to be able to make the case for the economic benefits of their drugs, which aren't on the label, and it could be construed uh, legally as illegal promotion of the drugs if they discuss this. So this provision in the, in the bill, if it goes through, will facilitate those kinds of conversations with payers. Actually, I think that's really important because, you know, we've had Sean Tunis and other people say there's not enough reimbursement science. We know that there is not enough communication between companies and payers. And as we move to value-based pricing, understanding what payers will pay for and what evidence they need to see in order to generate that payment is really important. And you have actually in Europe, in the UK, you do have a model. So first of all, in Europe, you know, they speak to payers earlier. In the UK, they have the ILAP, ILAP path, which is part of the accelerated approval sort of like pathway. But very early on, they're speaking with regulators and payers and constructing things. And so companies here are kind of at a disadvantage if they can't properly talk to payers beforehand. So I think that that could be a very interesting development. As you mentioned, that shout out that you gave to Sean Tunis, he's the former chief medical officer of CMS. And Steve, I know you'll be following this in the weeks and months ahead. Just quickly, what's the time frame we're looking at here to get this across the goal line? FDA wants to get it across the goal line by early summer. The reason that they want that is because if it isn't done by sometime this summer, FDA would have to, under the law, notify all of the employees that are funded by user fees that their jobs are at risk. And that's not really something that encourages good staff morale. The drop dead date on it is the end of the fiscal year, the end of September. If it's not reauthorized by then, then user fees disappear and FDA's ability to regulate medical products vanishes. So that's the absolute end of it. Well, I'd like to bring in Karen now. Karen is our senior editor in charge of our translational coverage. She covers a lot of white space stuff. She's not afraid to go early and often. Now, Karen spent some time speaking with 
several key members of the Howard University team. Howard, of course, is one of the premier historically black colleges and universities in the US. And its mission includes focusing on issues affecting the African diaspora, a focus that challenges its biomedical researchers to expand the clinical relevance of their work and explore less studied patient populations. So Karen, I'd like to turn it over to you. What did you, what did you learn about what Howard is doing in translation? Thanks, Jeff. It was awesome to get a chance to connect with different researchers at Howard across different disease areas and specialties. But one of the things that I kept noticing when speaking to folks is that the investigators who said in a different institution, I might have just been focused on models at the bench. But because of Howard's focus on racial health disparities, that often brings in an imperative to study humans. Um, so to look at patient populations, for example, coming into the hospital there, and that immediately elevates the translational relevance of that work, connecting what they're doing with disease models in the lab to actual patient data. So I thought that was really awesome. Among one example of that is work in the dermatology department on, uh, and Apologies if I butcher this disease name, hydradenitis suppurativa, and looking at the, the fact that uh, in the patients they were seeing, you're seeing elevated levels of neutrophil extracellular traps, and that ties into growing understanding of whether this is actually an autoimmune disorder and how to go about treating it. So I thought this was a great story. By the way, everybody, really go and read the story. It's a very, very good one. One of the things that is so important here, I've been at a, a couple of conferences, yes, in-person conferences in the last couple of weeks. And yes, I'm going to bioequity. And one thing that has become abundantly clear to me is that there is a genuine and important need in industry to do better, in fact, to do something with regard to both diversity in clinical trials and actually addressing health disparities at least in the US, but also worldwide, it is equally apparent to me that people are floundering. They have actually no idea really how to go about doing this. And so I think that engaging with researchers at Howard University and other places that are probably doing many you know, types of these studies will be part of that solution and will be really important. It's interesting because I've spoken recently with Ned Charpless, the outgoing director of the National Cancer Institute with Janet Woodcock, principal deputy commissioner at the FDA, and ask them what they think are the steps that industry can and should take to improve clinical trials diversity and to reduce health disparities. Both of them pointed to partnerships and collaborations with historically Black colleges and universities like Howard as being one of the most concrete and impactful steps that companies can take to address both of those parameters. No, absolutely. And that was a big take home from the story for me as well. And one of the big things is that you have the experts there working directly with patient populations. For example, in the case of HS, this um, dermatological disease I was just describing, it's more prevalent in African-American populations, but that is not reflected at all in the clinical trial enrollment. And 
the faculty there are really eager and keen to start some clinical trials there, but it's a place where there hasn't been historically a ton of clinical trial infrastructure. And one thing is that there tends to be a lot on investigators' plates in terms of managing the bench research, the patient-focused studies, and other community responsibilities as well. Um, The dermatology department just pulled out and became a COVID testing focused uh, unit in uh, the middle of the pandemic. So it seemed like one of the really impactful things that industry could do is partner with investigators at HBCUs like Howard to set up that clinical trial infrastructure, provide the trial coordinators the simple things that maybe um, at institutions where trials have been happening abundantly forever um, are already in place, but where could really move the needle at a place like Howard. And the last thing on this issue, I want to encourage everybody to go to our website. In front of the paywall is a great commentary by Andy Plump, who is the head of R&D at Takeda. And he is calling on industry, on his colleagues, to increase diversity in clinical trials. And he lays out his recommendations for how to do that. So certainly, I think that there is a will and hope that we see some improvements there. Excellent. And I I look forward to checking that out. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. And one of those causes is improving STEM literacy and education for girls and gender expansive youth. The group will be holding its Symphony for Science on May 23rd at 7.30 p.m. This benefit will support the Science Club for Girls, which highlights the critical importance of mentorship and access to STEM education for individuals from underrepresented communities. So if you're in Boston or the Boston area on May 23rd, check out the Kendall Square Orchestra's Symphony for Science 2022.